Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the MEM podcast. I'm Demi Wright and today I'll be talking with Dr. Ian Wilkinson, who's a consultant geriatrician at the East Surrey Hospital and he's also the host of the MDT podcast, which is your source for all things geriatrics. Hi Dr. Wilkinson, thanks for joining us. Hi Demi, thank you for inviting me. So today we were going to talk about frailty and frailty is quite a new concept that's been gaining a lot of popularity in the last few years. So we'd really like to find out a bit about what it is, how do we identify it and an approach to the management strategy. Dr. Wilkinson, um, can you tell me what is frailty? Yeah, so well, frailty is a it's a state of increased vulnerability to stressors brought about by age-related changes and, and broadly declines in your physiological reserve that occurs across neuromuscular, metabolic, and immune systems. And that definition is broadly taken from the American Geriatric Society Aging Research Conference back in 2006. And it's really exactly that. So it's when you're born, you your physiology is not perfect. It's not 100%. And we all accept that. And we grow and develop over the first few years of our life. And then we, we reach our physiological peak, that pristine point top moment when, unfortunately, we're about 30. And then from then, there's a you know roughly a 1% per year decline in your physiology. And that occurs across different dimensions and and is completely normal part of the aging process and then at some point purely as a virtue of of your declining physiology you will reach a point that you become dependent and that might be a dependency on a stick or a mobility aid or another person or even something like a medication so you may develop diabetes and become dependent on on the medication to keep you ticking along and at that point if you were to then have an illness strike you like flu or coronavirus or something your level of dependency might get more and equally, if you are not dependent, so let's say you're, you know, you're in your mid 40s and you get a really severe bout of flu, you might end up in intensive care and, and in hospital and your physiology your ability to, to manage your percent body function, if you like, has dropped dramatically, you know, maybe 50% or something. And it's dropped you right into that area of dependency. If you're 80 and you get exactly the same illness, it affects you in exactly the same way, but you have less reserve. And so you will bottom out and you will get right down to the next line on this sort of hypothetical graph that you could draw that would be a level of physiological dysfunction that's not survivable that's death and in a cohort of humans that probably would occur at somewhere you know 110 120 or something like that as as a pristine cohort of humans but what happens with frailty is is that the trajectory of that line has changed a bit and so you are more dependent you have less physiological reserve than someone that is not frail one underpinning to that is this concept of, of something called sarcopenia as we age, the way in which our muscle is built changes. So we have type 2 fast twitch fibers and we have type 1 slow twitch fibers. And depending on your ethnicity and your background and your birth weight and all sorts of things, the makeup of your muscle will, will be different. Um, and some people will have more fast twitch explosive muscle fibers. Some people will have more slow twitch, sort of longer, slower muscle. And what happens as we age is you can develop sarcopenia. So you, you lose relatively the fast twitch fibers. And so you get a loss of muscle mass and that has a number of effects. So if you've got less muscle, your resting metabolic rate is less because there's less stuff going on. Your strength and your power is less and muscle affects your respiratory system as well. And so your VO2 max is less. And the combination of those things is that your walking speed reduces and that may lead on to a disability or a visual dependency. And as your walking speed reduces, it's natural that you do less. So if it used to take you 10 minutes to walk to the shop and come back, 
you know, you can be at the shop, you can do your shopping, you can be back in half an hour. If that now takes you an hour to walk to the shop, that's a couple of hours of your time just going to the shop and back. And so what happens is you will do less. And if you do less, you have a reduced energy expenditure. You add into that that you get neuroendocrine dysregulation as we age and and you can get a relative anorexia of aging and you end up with someone who is doing less but also relatively undernourished. And that chronic undernourishment sets up a low-grade inflammatory response and a negative energy balance and then more loss of muscle. And that's the frailty cycle as described by Linda Freed in her model of frailty. Okay, so you touched on quite a few things in that definition, and it's frequently confused in practice that I found people saying that someone is frail and they're cinemizing that with someone who is very old or Mm. someone who has multiple comorbidities. Would you say that that's a reasonable thing, that frailty is equal to an old age or is equal to multimorbidity? No, I mean, it's not really. It's not at all, really, because you can have really very robust older people who are distinctly not frail. And you can have younger people that might have, you know, multi-organ dysfunction from their their liver disease or their connective tissue disease who are frail, you know, might be frail in their 40s or 50s. And I think years ago when frailty was first talked about, it was very much a a definition that was age-based. And then, you know, it just doesn't work because humans don't ultimately change. And so, you know, we are now living to our our late 80s early 90s whereas back in the middle ages you know you would have been frail if you were in your late 20s because you probably only had another you know life expectancy of another five years so i don't buy that age is definition of or helps you with your thoughts about frailty what frailty is is a i guess a dysfunction that results from the aging process so that you know certainly if you look at a cohort of people the older people are more likely to be frail you know that's not disputed but i think think about a progression in each age group from robust individuals to people who are pre-frail to people who are frail and depending on the age group that you look at you'll have different numbers in each group but you will have robust pre-frail and frail people at all age groups and as you progress through that the progression is associated with greater morbidity greater functional decline and greater mortality Equally, there is a, an interaction between multimorbidity and frailty. And about 50% of frail patients have multimorbidity, but only about 14% of people who have multimorbidity are also frail. So I'll say that again. So about half of the people who have frailty have multimorbidity, um, but only about 14% who have multimorbidity also have frailty. And I think that comes down to what multimorbidity is. And it's common. It's one in six adult patients in the UK. But it it is two or more physical or mental health conditions, symptom complexes, such as like chronic pain or something, sensory impairments, alcohol or substance misuse or learning disabilities. So it's two or more of those things. And it's very common, but it is different to frailty. But if you have more long-term conditions you are more likely to be frail yes in the same way the older you are the more likely you are to be frail but the two things are separate and different okay and that makes a whole lot of sense so you did allude to it earlier how do we then go and identify which patients are actually frail Mm, that's a good question so there's there's lots of different frailty assessment tools that you can look at it doesn't really matter which one you do so Linda Freed looks at a phenotype for frailty and she would say that in order to be frail you need to have reduced muscle strength as evidenced by hand grip strength reduced gait speed with the magic number being about one meter per second so above that you're unlikely to be frail below that you're more likely to be frail 
reduced energy expenditure, as in the amount of energy that you're using and your physical activities, weight loss, and a subjective feeling of lethargy. So if you have a number of those, you would say you're frail. So that's quite a good rough screening tool. But within those, if you were going to do just one thing, then gait speed, I think, is the thing that I would want people to do. In the late 90s, Ken Rockwood from Canada started some work looking at a frailty index, which is if you think of frailty as an accumulation of things that could be wrong, an accumulation of deficits, a frailty index is categorizing and counting those deficits. So you look for conditions that are more common in older people and confer a negative outcome. So hypertension is more common as we get older, and we know it's not good for you. Having white hair is more common as you get older, but as far as we know, it doesn't confer a negative outcome. So going grey wouldn't count, but having hypertension would count. And you create a list, and as long as you've got about 30 things on the list, the maths works. So you create your list, and then you do a comprehensive assessment of your patient, and you tally off how many of the items on your list of 30 things your patient has. So if they have 15, you'd put 15 over 30, and that gives you a frailty index of 0.5, which is pretty high. So a frailty index is quite a good measure. And there is the electronic frailty index published by Andrew Clegg a few years ago that is now part of some of the GP systems that will automatically generate from the EMIS and, and various GP computer systems. But there are a number of others. You could look at, there's a Prisma 7. You could look at the timed up and go. There's something that's called frail as an assessment. There's the Edmonton frail scale. Probably the most commonly thing used at the moment, though, is the clinical frailty scale. Probably seen the images of the people with a little bit of description next to it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the clinical frailty scale. And it goes from level one, which is very fit. So people who are robust, active, energetic and motivated, they're the fittest in their age, through to late, which is very severely frail, who are people who are completely dependent and approaching the end of their life. And then level nine, which is people who are terminally ill. But it's important to think about that this corresponds to how people were two weeks before you see them so if two weeks beforehand they were fit and active that's what you would score them as if two weeks ago they were in hospital because they were really ill then you would score them as whatever they were at an example would be if you had an 80 year old lady who was on your ward and she was unwell with an infection and she's working with the discharge team to arrange a residential home placement and she's been in hospital for about three weeks dehydration following a fall but pre-hospital she had a number of chronic diseases but was walking slowly her daughter did a finances looked after a housekeeping and she had a once daily package of care but since she's been in hospital she's dependent in all her ADLs the debate is how you would score her because pre-hospital she was having quite a bit of help and needing help with some of her higher order ADL so that would be a clinical frailty scale five but now she's very dependent and she's about to move to a nursing or residential home and isn't really mobilizing very well and so now she would score as a seven severely frail or even an eight very severely frail um, so the question is how to do that so you look back two weeks and where were we two weeks ago when two weeks ago she was in hospital she was really poorly so she's a seven or an eight if actually this was right at the beginning of her admission two weeks ago she would have been pretty well and so so she would have scored a five. So your frailty scale will change over time. And I think that's a really important point to note because lots of the times we've seen patients on the take and we're scoring them at the time when we're seeing them, yeah. not realizing that actually it should have been two weeks before that time. Yeah. One thing that I definitely want to be clear about is we do know what frailty is, what it means, but why are we actually identifying these patients? What difference does it make to them or to their care? Well, I think if we identify who is frail, it gives us, I think, two things. First of all, it's a condition that we can do something about. And secondly, it's a condition that we know is going to progress over time 
or a state of affairs that we know is going to aggress over time. So we can therefore have conversations about what that progression might look like and help people plan for what is left of their life. And I think we owe it to people to do those things. So in terms of treating, the gold standard assessment and management of frailty is the comprehensive geriatric assessment, which is an assessment and management process. So it's an interdisciplinary, multi-component process focusing on their medical, psychological and functional capabilities. And what you get from a CGA is an integrated care plan and some idea about long-term follow-up. And if you put someone through the CGA process, they are more likely to be living at home and independent in a year. And the number needed to treat is about 17, which is really low compared to a number of the medications that we use commonly. The second thing is we can look at various other multi-component interventions. The evidence on these is slightly less good because most of them are done in people who are pre-frail or frail already, whereas actually probably the benefit of the intervention is in those people who were not yet slipping down that slope. And this is a combination of exercise and nutrition, essentially. So strength training to the point that the next day things hurt. So vigorous activity reduces the trajectory of frailty in all older age groups. So whatever your age, the trajectory of frailty will reduce if you do strength like resistance training. Uh, And secondly, protein intake, I think, is going to be very important. And we're looking for a decent amount of protein, so well over one gram per kilo of body weight per day of protein. And then the advanced planning, I think, follows very much the sort of management that I would use with someone who has multimorbidity. And there's a good, nice guidance on that that I would point you towards. Um, I don't normally recommend reading the whole nice guideline, but actually the multimorbidity one is really well written and it's very succinct. And the process is sort of start a conversation with the patients about the fact that they have multimorbidity or frailty. Try to establish what the problems for them are. So is the problem the disease or is the problem the 14 tablets we're trying to give you each day to fix the disease? Then through that, establish their goals, their values, their priorities. And through that, then agree an individualized care and management plan that you're then going to review, review their medicines, review their polypharmacy, review the management of all of their conditions and then you go back around the cycle sort of sometime later and I think the uh, the management of multimorbidity is is a key thing and the progression of that use so as well as we've got this progression from maybe single organ disease to multimorbidity to maybe multimorbidity with a, a functional impairment like a disability and then frailty we've kind of got that progression at the same time you've got another progression that's going alongside it which is managing people from a single organ or a risk factor based approach to then the person becoming frail and having multimorbidity and you starting those advanced care planning conversations and managing them for their multimorbidity rather than the single conditions that they've got and then fully multimorbidity management approach at which point actually we're less worried personally I'm less worried about you know managing risk factors for this that and the other I'm much more concerned about what the patient wants today tomorrow next week and I think there's those two processes sort of go in parallel. So definitely a more holistic approach and patient-centered approach to management. I think so yeah I think that's that's the key yeah. Okay Well, that was very helpful. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wilkinson. Oh, anytime at all. So if you want to hear more of our ramblings, we're the MDT podcast and we use Twitter a lot and that's at MDT underscore podcast. All right. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Cheers, Demi.